BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There were so many theories about the driver, about the car, about the crash, about everything concerned with Diane's death. The most obvious one was this one about a white Fiat. And let me just say to you, in the whole of this case, which is one of the many extraordinary things about it, this white Fiat that collided with the Mercedes S280, which Diana and Dodie were traveling, this Fiat which existed, which left residue and white paint on the wreck of the Mercedes, has never been found. And the driver of the white Fiat which collided with the Mercedes has never been identified. The French police never found them. Well, they, they never found the white Fiat, and thus they never found the drivers. Welcome to Episode 9 of Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved. I'm your host, homicide cop Colin McLaren. 22 years ago, I came to Paris in the immediate aftermath of Princess Diana's death to look for answers. And now I've returned with a team, including investigative journalists Dylan Howard and Aaron Tinney, to draw a definitive line under the investigation. In previous episodes, our forensic testing has established how the Mercedes carrying the princess lost control prior to the Alma Tunnel. But you can see it was darker, went to the right, which meant that it must have had an external force acted on the on the car itself, so it must have hit something. And I've interviewed Sabine, a crucial witness who said she saw another car exiting the tunnel seconds after the crash. We just had a dinner on, on this side, on the left bank, and uh, we crossed the bridge, the bridge de l'Alma, a little bit after midnight. And just at that point, at the end of the tunnel, we uh, met the Fiat Uno. He was uh, zigzagging, we thought he was drunk. When I looked at the car, there were a bump on the car and scratch on the paint of the car. And now the key was to connect the physical evidence with Sabine's eyewitness testimony. And in October 1997, detailed spectroscopic tests by the French authorities on the paint found on the wreckage of the Mercedes further bolstered the theory that the speeding car had contact with another vehicle before it crashed and provided detectives with a solid lead to work from. We have said to analyse each chip of paint. Mm -hmm. With infrared spectroscopy, you obtain a, a spectra we compare this uh, spectra that we obtain with all the data of the spectra of paint of cars that we have in our lab. And we have the proposition that it was of the Bianco Corfu 224. Bianca Corfu 224 is a particular color of white paint. 
at that time unique to Fiat Unos, manufactured between 1983 and 1987. It all fitted together. Sabine was right. A white Fiat Uno was involved. And my work with expert automotive engineer Vincent Messina confirmed that the two vehicles had collided moments before the tunnel. Now, if you remember four years ago, I told you the update was that there was white paint on the side of the Mercedes, which was identified 100% forensically to the paint of a used Fiat Uno in a certain make and model, certain year. And that came um, about through investigative work by the police. And the scraping alongside of the Mercedes was only minor. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. As I said, if there was any greater content than that, then the car would have, I suppose, veered right or glanced right a lot more than did. It was only mm. a, just a touch, mm-hmm. enough to uh, make a change in the weight of the weight distribution of the front tyres, that's all. It does appear to be that the Mercedes glanced off and no doubt didn't help its control. The Fiat Uno, as it entered the tunnel, that's why there was paint recovered and all the rest of it. However, the big question remained, was the collision deliberate? Some remain convinced that it was just a tragic accident. The white Fiat Uno was there and it did touch the Mercedes, but that's all it did. It didn't force the Mercedes into the pillar which caused the crash. It was there and it scraped the Mercedes, but that was it. The car might have been glanced by a Fiat Uno, but that's never been proved. And I don't think that's ever going to be proved. I mean, something might have hit it, but I don't think it was purposeful. I think it was just circumstantial. I don't know whether the driver was involved or wasn't involved. Others do not. In the days, weeks, months and even years following the death of the Princess of Wales and driven in part by the slapdash treatment of the crime scene by the French police, numerous sinister conspiracy theories sprung up around La Fiat Blanc, fuelled mostly by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the grieving father of Diana's companion, Dodi Fayed. Now we hear from Paris that there was a car in the tunnel, a Fiat Uno. Parts of it have been found on the floor, along with the, the Mercedes wing mirror, which apparently collided with it. But this car apparently has disappeared. Why? Why would anybody who had an innocent purpose in that underpass have disappeared? It was really Al-Fayed who launched this whole canard about how the royal family had been uh, responsible perhaps for the murder of Diana, in particular Prince Philip, which was an outrageous allegation that he made against Philip. My personal view is this was not an accident. And if you work backwards, uh, I often do say to myself in something like this, who benefits? Uh, and then you begin to see the trail here. That's really what delayed the inquest for so long, because these allegations of murder had to be investigated, and they were. But no one has ever found... No matter what state he may have been in, no matter what, he was, in, I suppose, not conscious of what was going on around him, he could not have seen a guy doing 110 miles an hour. He wouldn't have even seen him. It would have just been, he's turned onto the road, a clip, that's what he would have felt. wouldn't have known, wouldn't have seen a car... So was the Fiat Uno's contact with the Mercedes, no matter how fleeting, deliberate? Was the little white car effectively a murder weapon? And if so, who was behind the wheel? Either way, accident or ambush, tragedy or treason, there was only one way to be sure, to find the Fiat and its driver. 
Sabine had even recalled that the car had Parisian number plates. I remember the license number is 92 or 78, some department like this. So how hard could finding that car really be? There are 45,000 Fiat like this just in the Paris area alone. Uh, they've had uh, about 20 uh, detectives from the Paris Brigade Criminelle, which only has 120 detectives and all in it, out there looking for Fiat every day. Uh, meanwhile, there's a serial killer on the loose in Paris, and um, you know people are beginning to talk. The unions of police are complaining that there's just too much manpower devoted for this potentially fruitless hunt for the Fiat. Uh, if if they don't find the Fiat amongst the 45,000 in the Paris area, they're talking about going to a broader area where there's another 110,000. In that case, it could just take forever, and there are really questions, given that the French police really believe that this is nothing but a routine uh, drink and driving accident as to whether it's worth finding that fiat, you know, if they're going to spend months and months and, uh, of police, police manpower just trying to find something that may be mythical or, as the gentleman said earlier, a fiat that could conceivably be from another country. For Mohammed Al-Fayed, the question of the mystery driver's motives was all-consuming and tracking down that person became his obsession. In January 1999, 18 months after the search for the white Fiat Uno had begun, he offered a reward of a million pounds sterling. That's around $2.5 million today to anybody who could find the elusive white Fiat. And the very fact that it had vanished only reinforced the suspicions of those who suspected foul play. If you or I tried to make a car disappear, I promise you we could not do it. Even the Mafia would have difficulty making a car disappear. There is always some trace of it. But in this case, the French police, who had all the resources they could possibly need, have never found the white Fiat. The driver of the white Fiat and where he was and what had happened to that car was one of those ongoing mysteries that haunted the whole death of Diana story. Journalists for years were obsessed with the report of the white Fiat Uno that had somehow brushed against her car, possibly caused the accident and was never seen again. There may have been over 4,600 white Fiat Unos in Paris alone, but nonetheless, such a crucial part of this high-profile investigation should have turned up results and fast. But despite hundreds of police man-hours and the attention of the world, only two credible suspected drivers were ever tracked down. And one of them wasn't even by the police at all. In February 1998, Mohammed Al-Fayed's team sensationally claimed to have finally found their man. Have French investigators bungled their search for the mysterious white beard? According to private detectives hired by Mohammed Al-Fayed in Paris, the answer is yes. They believe the Fiat Uno found in a garage in the suburbs of Paris is the one that collided with Princess Diana's Mercedes at the Pont d'Almatunnel last August. Furthermore, they claim, police inspected the car and wrongly ruled it out of the investigation. Not only do Al-Fayed's private investigators claim they have found the car, but add they know who the owner was. It's a Fiat Uno, which at the time belonged to a journalist who was interested in the comings and goings of Diana and Dodi. James Anderson was a well-known press photographer who had been amongst the paparazzi following the princess and Dodi Fayette in Saint-Tropez. Could he have been chasing Dinah in Paris that night and unwittingly clipped the Mercedes with his Fiat? 
As the French police hauled him in for questioning, he denied everything. This French photographer who had been stalking celebrities in the south of France throughout his professional life and had been always around Diana when she was ever in Paris. He had initially denied that he was in Paris that night and he made vigorous steps to establish an alibi that he was somewhere elsewhere and that he'd flown to the island of Corsica to take photographs of a famous Belgian singer. So if he was in Paris that night, was he on the route that they Mercedes took from Rue Cambon at the back of the Ritz Hotel to the Alma Tunnel? Uh, it's said that Anderson almost certainly was about very shortly before he died to publish a book including photographs taken presumably by him on that last journey. The French cops dismissed Anderson from their inquiries, satisfied that he had shown that far from being among the pack of photographers chasing Diana through Paris that night, he'd been 177 miles away, at home, in bed with his wife. They also concluded that Anderson's car was too unroadworthy to have been the vehicle that hit Diana's Mercedes. For Mohammed Al-Fayed, however, even this was not enough. He challenged that the Fiat Uno was being used by the British Secret Service Agency MI6 and that Anderson was himself in the pay of MI6 and had bumped off Diana and Dodie deliberately. And then, in the summer of 2000, something extraordinary happened to James Anderson that further fueled suspicion against him. In June 2000... Andalson apparently committed suicide by setting fire to himself in his car on this piece of army land. Both friends and even the funeral director are very sceptical that Andalson really killed himself. Anderson had a white fiat, but Anderson mysteriously died before the British inquest and before he could be properly questioned. And he was found inside the locked car, one of his own locked cars, in the middle of an area which is used by the French military for training. Anderson's body was discovered in his burnt-out BMW in Woodlands, near to the town of Nantes in the south of France. He was in the driver's seat, an empty fuel container between his feet. His body was completely incinerated. Oddly, he had a hole in the temple of his head. The verdict was suicide by self-immolation. The pathologist concluded that the injuries to his head, the hole in the temple, was caused by the intense heat of the fire. He'd allegedly committed suicide, but he had two bullets in his head. I don't know how in suicide you managed to put two bullets in your head, but that's a matter for cleverer people than me. But I do know that it is an established fact that suicides never or almost never lock the doors when they're about to commit suicide. But the doors of this car, uh, Anderson's car, were locked. I think that's another interesting subplot because I personally don't believe anybody committed suicide by the manner in which he did it. I think he had information. He claimed he did to a family. Anderson's suicide put the conspiracy theorists into a frenzy. Some claimed he killed himself in a fit of remorse for having murdered Diana three years earlier. Others have it that he was the subject of a hit by the secret service agencies he was supposed to be an agent for in order to ensure his silence. 
And most of all, it was the manner of his death that provoked the most suspicion. But I mean, two bullets in the head and a car being burned out in the BMW was the most bizarre. It's no kind of suicide. I don't know how you shoot yourself and then light a match kind of scenario. Naturally, I've conducted my own inquiries into James Anderson, and it is my firm belief that he was not the subject of any kind of sinister secret agency assassination, and that he did, sadly, take his own life. Only one other man was ever seriously questioned by French police as a possible owner of the white Fiat Uno, and the circumstances of him becoming a suspect are even stranger than that of James Anderson. But actually, the French, in the end, did track down that Fiat Uno. They came across it, I think it was nine years later, and they found it in a working-class suburb of Paris. 22-year-old French-Vietnamese national Lee Van Tan came to the attention of the police when he was issued with a traffic fine for his white Fiat Uno, and he walked into a police station to pay his fine. It was then an astute cop asked to see his white Fiat. The most remarkable thing about the white feet was it was now red, but in every other respect, it matched the mysterious missing car from the Place de Lielma, and Lee Van Tan himself matched the description of the driver seen by Sabine. He was a small, uh, with a short black hair and a, a, a tan skin. He was looking uh, in his mirror like something upset him. Lee Van Tan gave a statement to the police in which he claimed to have been at work that night as a security guard and that he had had the car resprayed red months before August the 31st, 1997. A statement in conflict with what Sabine saw. The authorities were not entirely convinced and decided to raid his house. What were they to find? Two very large guard dogs, black and tan coloured with muzzles again matching exactly what Sabine claimed to have seen with the Fiat leaving the tunnel. He was agitated and on the back of the seats there were a dog and he was having a muzzle, an orange muzzle. The police seized the Fiat and took it away for forensic testing. This surely would be the breakthrough that would crack the case. At one stage, a man of Vietnamese ancestry was identified as a possible suspect of driving the car with a dog in the back. There were suspicions that this gentleman, who I think was working in a security capacity somewhere in Paris, was involved. And it was said at the time that his car had been repaired and indeed repainted. Police examined Lee Van Tan's car, even noting that, as well as the red paint job, a taillight had been replaced, as well as the rubber bumpers. I spoke to the forensic expert who actually examined the Fiat. He explained exactly what they looked for. So you saw the car yourself? Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. Under the red paint, we, we found very quickly the, the white original coat of the, the paint. Do you know if you made an analysis or examination on the left-hand side of this red car? What I remember is that I analyzed on the rear of this car. Rear of the car. Uh, rear of the car, not in the front, because why, I don't remember, because I, I remember that there is some deformation. 
I don't remember exactly, but uh, for the memory I have, it was not compatible with uh, the, the accident of the, the Mercedes. According to their analysis, it was not the right car, and Lee Van Tan was officially ruled out as a suspect. And as far as the French police were concerned, that was that. He was initially mentioned as a possible driver of the white Fiat, and there's a lot of press speculation about him, but the French police ruled him and his car out very quickly. Lee Van Tan did indeed live in Paris, and he did indeed have a Fiat that was painted subsequently, but it was not him. I mean, the French police looked into him in great detail and found that it was not him, it was not his car. They found his car, they looked at it and examined it, and it was not the same car not the same paint, nothing. And then, strangest of all, the police just gave up looking for any more Fiat Unos. Why would they do that? After questioning a man who matched a description from the crime scene? Whose dog matched its description? A man who owned the right make and model of car? And who had resprayed that car? And changed the taillight? And rear bumpers? Why would the French police just stop searching for the real owner of the white Fiat? If you're looking for conspiracies, this one would jump out at you and smack you in the face. Then something even stranger happened. Throughout the entire saga, Lee Van Tan had remained tight-lipped, refusing all requests to speak to the media. But in 2006, Lee Van Tan's own father broke his silence and contradicted his son's claim that the respray predated the crash. He said it happened hours later. It was time to re-examine the evidence, and immediately something stood out. When I interviewed Sabine, she had been very clear about exactly where the scratches on the Fiat were located. And there were scratches on the side of the car. In the back. The back. Mm-hmm. From the tail light Behind forward. the driver, on the left. East-west scrape At marks. the end of the car. East-west scrape marks. Behind the driver, on the left. That's what Sabine saw that night. That's what she told me. And yet the forensic expert who studied Lee Van Tan's white, now red Fiat admitted to me that he had not examined the left side of the car. Why not? Do you know if you made an analysis or examination on the left-hand side of this red car? What I remember is that analyse on the rear of this car. Now, as far as the French authorities were concerned, neither of the two men who seemed most likely to own the white Fiat were the owners of the white Fiat of interest. And, to defy all investigative logic, they had given up trying to find anyone else. Rightfully, James Anderson wasn't the driver. But now, apparently, Lee Van Tan wasn't either. La Fiat Blanc remained a mystery. It turned out his failure to come forward actually wasn't a sinister conspiracy to hide something uh, devious. It was actually just an immigrant fear of getting entangled in French law and perhaps being deported. It obviously did hit fear, you know, whether that was an accident by the driver driving too fast into the tunnel or whether the Fiat Uno was in the wrong lane. I, you know, I can't, I can't take it beyond that. I don't know what part the Fiat Uno plays other than it obviously had a role as a, as a vehicle that was there. But whether the driver did this deliberately or not and, and what his background is, why he had the car repainted, all the rest of these other questions are in the same league as the Anderson story. 
this is another one of the great sort of ironies of the death of Diana, that actually, you know, the whole mystery of the fiat, you know, just turns out to be, actually, it was being driven by this immigrant guy who thought, oh my God, you know, they're coming for me, and hid the car and painted it red. The French police may have been satisfied that their investigations into Lee Van Tan were over, but I wasn't, and things were about to get a whole lot murkier. Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana, case solved. It's not easy to know that your child been slaughtered, right, by a bunch of gangsters whom they call themselves the British royal family. And the head of the British fa- royal family, himself, Prince Philip, he's a Nazi at the core and he's v- well-known racist. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved is hosted by me, Colin McLaren. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and is production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts. <laughs>